Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Elena Melchert, fellow podcast host here at OGGN. In case you didn't know, the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast is just one of about a dozen shows brought to you by the Oil & Gas Global Network. Elena is hosting Oil & Gas Upstream, which is a revamp of a show that we previously had, Oil & Gas Onshore. One thing I enjoy about all of our shows is that our hosts are not just podcast personalities. We all have experience in the industry that help us drive these great conversations for your listening pleasure, while also hopefully teaching you something too. So today we are going to talk about upstream oil and gas and what that means for those of us focused on energy transition. And we are going to get this insight from our resident expert, Elena Melchert. Elena, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would, please share with me, the audience, your background, and a quick introduction to what you're doing these days. Well, thank you, Joe. So first I want to um, give a little bit of clarification about my name. My name is Elena Subia Melkert. The C-H in Melkert sounds like a K, as in Christmas. It's my husband's name. So, but that's okay. Everyone does that all the time. And I guess since I work with a lot of, I've worked with a lot of geologists, Chert just sort of comes out of, you know, comes out. So it's, it's quite all right. It's quite all right. Thank you. Thank you for correcting me. And that is exactly right. As a geologist, that is my first thought when I see the <laughs> C-H-E-R-T, Chert, but Elena Melkert. Is that that's, better? That's much better, much better. And so uh, CHIRT also comes to my mind because my undergraduate work was in soil science. And, of course, soils come from the um, uh, from rock uh, as it uh, breaks down, uh, erodes over time, and uh, ultimately becomes the basis for uh, uh, sedimentary formations where we have accumulations of oil and gas, which is, so it's, so my soils background, while I didn't understand or didn't appreciate that it would have relevance here in oil and gas really has come into play, um, especially of late with the unconventional work, but I, I'm getting ahead of myself. I just wanted to show you about, you know, soils and chert and, and the geology there as well. So let's see. Um, I am a petroleum engineer. I've been in the oil business for 40 years, um, going on 41 years. I started Boots in the Field in Bakersfield, California. I worked at, for Getty Oil Company, oh, for the Getty Mining Company, uh, and then the Getty Oil Company, and then Getty bought out, got bought out by Texaco in a, a huge merger. At the time, it was the largest merger. And um, 
Then I had the opportunity to work, and all that was in heavy oil on the west side of Kern County in Bakersfield. And I had the opportunity to work for the government. They had an opening at Elk Hills Naval Petroleum Reserve, the giant oil field uh, in Bakersfield, and um, as a production engineer. Uh, and so I was able to um, move into the government. Of course, that was light oil and natural gas. So it was pretty cool, pretty fun. And um, so I was in Bakersfield for a total of eight years. Um, after about four years, I was able to, uh, I was selected for a leadership program in Washington, D.C. So I came to D.C. headquarters for the U.S. Department of Energy um, for what I thought was going to be a temporary assignment. And it turns out that um, it was not temporary assignment. I got an offer I couldn't refuse. My husband was willing to move to uh, move out of California and come to D.C. And so here we are, uh, thirty plus years later, um, in, still in Washington D.C. Um, we had some life changes as soon as we got here. We had a baby uh, after praying for a baby for almost 10 years. So um, the rest is history. Now she's married and uh, she's, an, uh, she's an astronautics engineer. She's a rocket scientist. And she and uh, her husband are living in Philly. So we're, we're real close now. We're, we're able to visit them and they're able to visit us quite often. But with respect to my career, um, it's always been uh, about oil and gas, always been on the production side, always been a focus on um, increasing recovery and operational efficiency. And so when I was um, um, selected for the director for upstream oil and gas research, um, which they didn't have um, a director prior to my um, being selected for that position, um, I was really excited because I had an opportunity to um, shape the direction that uh, we would go with respect to oil and gas upstream research. And um, the uh, shale development was something that was a natural outcome from some of the early investments that the Department of Energy made uh, in hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling. So early on, uh, the Department of Energy was the entity that spent the most money on those two separate technologies. First, early stage with the national laboratories and then uh, uh, later stages of uh, technology readiness. But it wasn't until the industry put those two technologies together that we had the fabulous unlocking of uh, shales and uh, both oil and gas. And so we, we were able to see um, production like we hadn't seen, well, almost ever. And we, you know, we were able to take on the market, some market presence. Uh, and, and sometimes I say we were able to break OPEC because of that, <laughs> because we had so much production. Of course, you know, the LNG um, uh, exports are, you know, part of that whole legacy of being able to unlock uh, shales. So that's, that's an overview of my, of my career. I, I uh, retired a year ago. Um, and I uh, wasn't very good at retirement, and so I founded a small consultancy in oil and gas uh, related. And I, I guess I know a lot of people because I've been getting a lot of phone calls. I'm real popular, and that's uh, <laughs> awfully exciting. Um, and uh, but but one of the key key reasons is because of my experience as uh, an investor, if you will, in technology development. Mm -hmm. Um, and now with the Department of Energy spending so much money or having so much money appropriated by Congress for energy transition, 
Um, I'm, uh, I'm able to help people in all the areas, subsurface areas, you know, oil and gas, of course, um, as well as uh, geothermal and as well as carbon storage. Anything that has subsurface in it, um, those are the same skills that we developed in oil and gas. And so um, they're finding an expanded home in these other areas. That is, it's very exciting to hear all of that and and the really something that I was going to ask you in a little bit, talking about the government, the DOE, and just kind of the research that is supported by government funding. Before I get there, though, I had a question that I really wanted to ask you. So you've had this this full career and full career focused on on what should we be researching to unlock large swaths of energy, all of that through the government. And and you said you've had a a 40-year-long career. How much of those 40 years was in the government? Um, 30, uh, 36 years, almost 36 years. Um, Part of that time was in the field, uh, actual, you know, boots in the field, exploration production, production quotas, protection targets, I guess is what we call them. I just call them quotas. Um, until I moved to um, Washington in 1990, where I was um, a part of the, um, I want to say the leadership. I was a program manager for Elk Hills and program manager for Teapot Dome, two oil fields that the Department of Energy uh, used to own. I should say the Navy used to own, operated by the Department of Energy. So um, that, so government a long, long time. And um most of that career has been in Washington, D.C., where, where I still am. Okay. So all of that time in D.C., you've gotten to see if, if 1990, if I remember my, my politics correctly, that was George H.W. and then Clinton took over very, very soon after that, I think somewhere in the 90s. This is me yeah. showing how bad I am at politics. Well, okay. Well, I'm really good at that. I'm good at that, Jane, because I, I have served seven presidents. And so wow. when I was in the field, it was Reagan. Uh, and then when I came to headquarters, I um, came in the transition between uh, Reagan and Bush, Bush 41. And then, um, let's see, Reagan, Bush, and then we had Clinton. Uh, and if you remember, um, President Bush only served one term. And then President Lincoln served, I mean, Lincoln, Clinton <laughs> served two terms, right? And then uh, President Bush, 43, um, he was a 43rd president, and that's how they number them. Um, Bush, 43, served two terms. And then we had Obama, he served two terms. And each each president had his, had his own uh, uh, preference uh, and, uh, well, preference about um, energy. Uh, so, so, uh, president Trump, uh, was very pro oil and gas. Uh, and now we have president Biden. Um, but through those, through that time, oil and gas have gained and waned in popularity, uh, but has never really, um, grown less in its, um, contribution to our overall energy consumption profile. And even, even as we look, and I'm going to jump ahead here if you don't mind, even as we look at uh, the Paris Agreement 
the 2050 consumption profile is the same as we have now with oil and gas and well, with fossil fuels being um, predominant uh, and then dramatic improvements and increases in supply by um, non-fossil fuels. And so it's really an all of the above in my point of view. Um, that has been the, the um, policy I think that has been the most successful because if you have a lot of sunshine, you should have solar. <laughs> if you have a lot of space, you should have wind. If you have oil and gas, you should use it. Um, over half of the country uh, has oil and gas deposits, 32, 33 oil and gas producing states. Um, so, so there. I mean, there's a lot of ways to get electricity, and I think that we should use all of them if we're going to move toward a lower carbon economy. So those, those are my thoughts about that. Yes. And that is kind of what I was getting at is with all of those different administrations that that you were serving under, how did that really impact DOE, impact energy policy and impact what the energy makeup looks like? And I think you've already answered that question. It really, ultimately, it's kind of this combination of both what is the energy that is available that can be produced and ultimately, how does that end up helping really here? What we're looking at is helping the U.S. and being able to provide cheap, abundant, reliable electricity in the U.S. With the, and, it, and I like to look at the, at the government as kind of America's R&D department because I, I was unaware of the significant role the government funding played in unlocking the shale revolution. I think that's a, a perfect example of where we see this abundant energy that needs some help in order to be figured out. And then once it is figured out and once those those difficulties or developmental hurdles are overcome, then the private industry takes it and and turns us into the number one oil producer in the world. Yeah, yeah. No, I definitely agree that that is the proper role for government. Um, when you have these technologies at early stage, or concepts, ideas, um, at the earliest stages, there is a, a lot of risk. It takes, it takes a lot to actually move that technology forward and we have technology readiness levels you know in the doe they use nine nine levels um you know zero would be that that idea on a napkin but um technology readiness level nine would be demonstrations for commercialization and of course it's not proper for the government to commercialize um and the um high risk and the burden of risk um is is not proper for for the private sector because they have responsibilities um, to to the shareholders and responsibilities to um, to everyone, and so coupling um, taxpayer dollars with the ingenuity of um, the private sector that and then then changing positions over time where in the early stages the government spreads out that risk that funding amongst all the people who will benefit which are the taxpayers 
Um, but then at the final stages, then um, where the potential for commercialization and great return is the highest, well, then that should be uh, led by the private sector who really understands markets and has the agility to respond to markets in a way that government cannot. So having this um, higher funding level at the earliest stages uh, for the government, having the highest funding level at that point. And then closest to commercialization, have a lower funding level, lowest funding level. Um, I think as the, and then the, every space in between as they change places. Um, I think that is, that is a good sound way to um, provide the energy that we need because energy is so fundamental to every other aspect of the market, all markets. And we're not even talking about uh, fundamental to quality of life, especially for those people who are suffering energy policy. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's no uh, secret that the wealth of a nation is tied to its natural resources. And, of course, people being able to use those natural resources in order to have a high quality of life is, is why we even have energy, why we would even care about it. So if you have to, if you have to use, um, um, you know, I don't want to say wood because, I mean, I use wood, I barbecue, but, but the point is, is that if you have to use, you know, wood and dung as your only sources of energy in order to, in order to cook, or if you only have electricity for a couple, three hours a day, how can you how can you learn to read? How can you write? How can you be part of the marketplace of ideas on a national on an international scale, world scale, global scale, and advance all, you know, advance everyone and all if you are energy poor? So so that's in my that's why I'm a believer of all of the above. There's there's no bad energy if it's gonna help people. And you know, people are <laughs> we wanna help first, right? So Yep, absolutely. That's a, I like that perspective and I like that take on it. I am curious when we're, when we're talking about the government kind of being that R&D arm and, and having more funding up front for that more fundamental research, I, I guess I hesitate a little bit because I, and, and full disclosure, much of my PhD was funded through government grants there are great technology advancements being made through the national labs and through different program offices. So I, I greatly appreciate it. I am just curious and, and I almost am concerned or wonder when there is this reliance on the government to, to provide these R&D dollars. And as we are changing on a four to eight year cycle of essentially who the boss is, who's steering the ship, does that ever impact or does that put at risk energy, really those fundamental energies that, that we're trying to develop or any type of future goals of having a reliable, resilient, clean energy grid? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, those are, that's a, that's a valid concern. There may be some extra things for you to consider, um, that might help with that. But, but, um, first of all, you do want the government to be uh, supporting the best and the brightest minds because that's where good ideas come from. Ideas come from everywhere. You never know, you know, who's going to have the better idea. And so you want to be investing in people, right? And you want people to get their PhDs, you know, using um, government funds because everyone has gains the benefit from that. 
Um, with respect to the the transition, oh, and I guess the other thing is that the government is not the only one who's involved in in R and D. Um, when a private company pursues research, then all of the results, all of the advances, all of that uh, competitive advantage belongs to that company, and that's good and great. And you know, they 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 probably don't need the government. And they probably you know, the government would only hinder them. Um, but they're only going to be pursuing research in areas where there's a market for it, right? It's it's hard. It's really expensive to create new markets. And of course, oil and gas isn't the only industry that conducts research and is not the only market in the marketplace. The the issue is though that um, having that um, that proprietary research with those results kind of limits what actually makes it into the market, right? It may be a good idea, but because they couldn't sell it, um, you know, it, it just stays there. Um, but with federal funding, everything is completely transparent. And so even though uh, the government is leading the research, the partners, there's always partnerships. Uh, there are some research grants, pure grants, and this is where we're going to get like a legalistic uh, language, you know, barrier, but a, a grant technically does not get repaid. Um, right, it's money that just goes out from the government. Most of the research that's um, with respect to energy at the Department of Energy, and we're talking about big dollars now, is cost shared, and so it's a cooperative agreement. And so there is um, always a, a minimum investment with the partners. Uh, the government is, you know, typically eighty percent uh, pays eighty percent of the funding, and the um, uh, partner will provide 20% cost share. And so right from the start, there's skin in the game from everyone. Um, but um, the results and the uh, warts and all uh, for any research project um, is completely transparent and everyone has access to it. And that's the beauty of it. That that transfer of information, that transfer of technology allows lots of market players. Then it becomes um, what is what is the competitive advantage that the marketeer can bring to this technology and actually get it into this marketplace and have people actually use it. Many technologies are either completely breakthrough. They provide something totally new like you know shale, being able to unlock the secrets of shale. Um, but then there's also technologies that are developed that obviate the way that we used to do it. And so it's, it is cleaner and it's better. Uh, you know, I think, I think everyone realizes that this isn't, uh, that the current uh, operational practices by oil and gas companies now, as they're um, exploring and producing, are not the same as those of, you know, the 1920s, say. Um, We've, there are a lot of technological advances um, that uh, allow oil and gas's footprint on on the surface, in the subsurface, in the air, in the water to be completely, you know, to be minimized, minimized, and so that's that's development from technology, and had those, and, and a lot from the government, and had those. Um, new technologies, new ideas, new directions, new insights, you know, the results not been available to others. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have others thinking creatively about, oh, how can I use that, um, you know, and bring it into the marketplace? And that's, that's a very exciting concept to be able to have this source of ideas. And all you have to do is just bring business acumen um, to, to be able to make those technologies something that everyone can use and that actually benefit everyone. Moving toward cleaner, right? I mean, that's, that's what's really exciting. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And I think moving toward cleaner, I feel like that's the shifting focus right now that you see within the DOE and within the the administration of these very large acts that are that are increasing the value of carbon credits, getting significant amounts of funding and the energy earth shots that are trying or setting these these goals of reducing prices for new low carbon energies, whether that's hydrogen or geothermal or solar panels. You see this this push right now from the current administration to drive innovation into new energy. How do you think that the oil and gas industry has adapted into this energy transition, especially the the very fast, almost exponential ramp up of it right now? And specifically, since you have this very illustrious career in upstream oil and gas, how is specifically the upstream part of the oil and gas industry kind of relating to the energy transition? Well, I guess uh, one has to, one thing has to do with the availability of information, the use of information, the processing of information. If you don't know that you are doing something, you know, good or bad, if you don't know that you're doing it because you're not able to to measure, or you or there are so much uh, information. Um, on the periphery that needs to be brought together in order to have a, a better picture of what you're doing. You can't, you can't make a change. You can't uh, do more of it if it's good or do less of it if it's, if it's bad. So this whole arena that was not invented inside the, inside the oil and gas sector, but outside with respect to uh, big data, data analytics, you know, moving toward artificial intelligence. Uh, the oil and gas sector is always the first one to take uh, those new technologies and really max them out. I mean, if, if you think about the timeline that I shared with you with my career, um, when I first started in the oil business, we didn't have PCs. We didn't have, uh, if you had access to a computer, it was a, uh, what would they call a terminal that was part of a, a mainframe. And so uh, this, this use of um, spreadsheets um, really was, uh, you know, phenomenal that you could actually have a machine add up a bunch of numbers for you once you put them in correctly. I mean, as opposed to using a calculator. I mean, that was that was the reality of of my experience. Um, so, uh, so, so when you have this uh, just ability to to know what you're doing in a way that you had never done before, and now we have, hopefully, you know, with uh, the advent of artificial intelligence and really having being able to interpret the information every time you intersect a natural system with an engineered system, there's there's a communication that interaction speaks. And so we are now with data, data analytics and in moving to artificial intelligence are able to understand more what the reservoir is telling us. That speaks to operational efficiency. That, ex, that speaks to, um, to increasing ultimate recovery. Um, and so the oil and gas sector is always the first to, you know, take on these, these, new, these new technologies and, these, um, and, and apply them in a way that hadn't been applied before. And then we tend to max it out, right? I mean, we're the first to max out uh, uh, memories just on, you know, on, on PCs, on computers, to because there's so much data. Natural systems create far more data than we're able to measure, uh, but even that that we can measure and, and, and gather really um, is a lot to deal with. Um, but I wanted to go back, if you don't mind, um, something about the 
um, we were talking about um, the change in administration and the imp- and the changes in policies and the impacts. Um, one thing that I've noticed is that even though oil and gas, you know, as a uh, I want to say a hot button for some administrations um, has has been more or less popular. There has always been a consistent interest in um, wanting to do the best for American taxpayers using technology and advancing some of these fundamental um, understandings with respect to energy and being able to to look and you know what is what is the best and I think that 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 speaks volume that the um, that the health and wealth of the nation is utmost um, in the minds of the leadership and that that's really uh, really important so while some particular um, uh, energy forms have grown or or, or lessened in popularity um, there has still been an interest and, and a focus, both in terms of two branches of government, right, that have to work together. The Congress provides the dollars and the executive branch uh, uh, spends it. And when they're aligned, then you can move faster. When they're not aligned, you move slower. But you're always moving forward, even though it doesn't seem to it to, uh, you know, to people outside of um, the Beltway, as we say, outside of Washington, D.C. It doesn't seem that progress is being made because it's it takes a while to translate into something real. But but it's really been um, exciting to work in Washington um, with all of the ideas uh, that have come forth and with respect to uh, specifically energy and energy policies. That's really great to hear. And I think that's something that people always need to hear is that with, with whatever is going on in the beltways, as you put it, it is always moving forward whether it may not seem like it, there is always that forward momentum. And I think that that comparison that you made and the the value of what is being done as far as R&D, ultimately it is the, the market's job to take that research and those findings and those new technology developments and then applying those to to the market and finding a way to produce energy cheaper and produce more energy so that we have a a clean abundant and hopefully inexhaustible supply of energy for the for the foreseeable future with all that in mind and now that you are a podcast host and you're going to be thinking breathing and talking to all these leaders in the upstream part of the oil and gas industry. I want to know from from your current position and from your current knowledge base, what do you see as the biggest challenge in upstream right now? Well, upstream is comprised of lots of different subsectors, if you will. And um, one of the first things that we did on on the oil and gas upstream podcast was uh, ask, you know, how do we define upstream? And so that's been the first question that I've asked uh, each of my guests is how do you describe um, upstream? Because there's a lot of moving parts and and each element of the upstream requires a certain level of subject matter expertise. And the higher the mastery, the more efficient the, you know, pieces come together at the interface, you know, to what we call upstream. Um, But but it's it's really exciting that um, I guess everybody concurs that if it's not 
it's bringing it up from the subsurface to the surface uh, until you get to moving it into the marketplace, which would then be the midstream, that kind of thing. So, so we define, um, we define upstream. Um, But because there are so many moving parts and some, and each part has, um, well, I should say in the whole value chain, there's a moving part. So sometimes one of the biggest problems in upstream is what's happening beyond in the value chain, either at the midstream or at the downstream. So, But with respect to technology, I think one of the biggest challenges is that we can't really see, after all this time, we can't really see what we're working with. I mean, we, we don't really have a way at looking at the reservoir beyond the bit. Um, we can infer, we can project, we can use a lot of data and sort of have some sort of um, make some assumptions about things, but we can't really see what we're doing. And because of that, we might each have a different construct in our minds as to what the reservoir looks like. Now, you know, we've got um, great graphics and, and great analytics that kind of give us these 3D models about what we're working with, but you always have this level of filling in the gap. And so um, the, the sharper the image that we can convey to each other in a multidisciplinary um, construct team um, so that each um, expert can uh, give us insights as to what they're detecting as they observe, um, you know, the data as, as uh, illustrated, I guess is what you're putting. Each can, person can bring in, you know, some of their um unique insights and then share that conversation uh, without having to wave your arms, uh, but actually being able to see it. So the biggest challenge is to being able to communicate across multidisciplinary uh, teams the um, the insights that you need in order to have higher efficiency about what you're doing, be it, you know, be it drilling, be it logging, be it, um, you know, enhanced recoveries of different kinds, being hydraulic fracturing, be it, you know, production and, and uh, produced water and injecting that back into the subsurface as wastewater. You know, there, there's just so much that we do, but we can't see any of it. And so that's the the biggest challenge. So so on that note, uh, one of the one of the last uh, big projects, or, or I should say, um, program areas that I was involved in at the Department of Energy was the Smart Initiative, where we challenged uh, people outside of the oil and gas sector um, to take you know the data that we that we actually have, and sort of in more in real time give us a visualization of the subsurface. And I just kept complaining that. Um, We've got all of these these games, you know, gamers put on these oculars and then they have all these these other sensors or whatever. And they can actually, you know, interact with others, you know, in virtual space, you know, uh, around the world. Uh, and why couldn't we take like real data and translate that into uh, more insights as we are moving through the reservoir perhaps in a drilling environment and use all of the data that um, sometimes we, I don't want to say cast away, but we just don't think about uh, as we are as we are drilling uh, we're paying attention to a couple four you know key parameters but not every single thing that we're doing and so being able to address all of that and of course that's a huge challenge <laughs> and, and people smarter than I've been working on this for some for some time but but I'm excited to to, to see that um, just the notion of uh, bigger uh, ca- computing capabilities and more sensitive um, tools you know sensors 
um, and uh, being able to understand some of the subsurface phenomenon in a way that you can design a sensor to look for that particular parameter, that all of that is really um, applicable to lots of energy forms. And so there's a lot of momentum uh, behind uh, being able to improve on that. That is, that's exciting in some regards that you didn't say we're running out of oil or we're going to have problem X, Y, Z that we just haven't figured out how to overcome. Really, the only problem is we're, we're kind of, we're, in some regards, it, it just means we're, we're working in a room with all the lights off. And eventually, after you run into the bed a few too many times or run into the desk a few too many times, you find your computer and you can start typing. So that's exciting and, and makes sense and is very cool to hear about the SMART initiative. I do know about the SMART initiative and it is very exciting work and, and results that are coming out of it. So as we're talking about the show, what can viewers expect for oil and gas upstream? It sounds like we're going to be talking about kind of that whole gambit of what is what is upstream. Are there any so far with everything that you've taped and everything that you're going to have out there? Is there anything especially interesting or trends or themes that that you see emerging that you think will continue to be highlighted? Well, one of the things, and you did ask me that question, I didn't get to that answer because I got ahead of myself here, but the um, one of the things that I, the reason that I am retired and now I'm still working <laughs> is because I love uh, learning new things and I love uh, learning more deeply about things, things that I thought I knew and, and the like. And so I want the... Um, I'm designing the upstream, the oil and gas upstream podcast to be part learning because, like I said, uh, upstream is comprised of many moving parts and it takes a lot of subject matter expertise. And it's hard for one person to know any everything. Uh, and so having a place where people talk about their day-to-day, -day, how they interact with the reservoirs or, you know, in the upstream sector, what, what do they do? How do they do it? What have they learned along the way? Um, what can others uh, learn from them? What insights do they want to offer uh, others with respect to the technology and, and um, achieving, the, achieving the goal that the, the technology is supposed to do? And then interfacing with other technologies. Um, so this is really what I want to do is to bring in uh, speakers or I should say guests and interview them about what they do and then help us, you know, all learn a little bit more about that that piece um, in, a, in a more meaningful way. So so when I sat down and started writing a list of, you know, people I'd love to interview, I got a really long list. I'm, I'm very excited. And it covers, you know, almost everything about Upstream um, and those parts that it doesn't cover. Um, I'm out looking for uh, people who would be interested in um, talking about what they do and how they do it. Uh, because ultimately, the oil and gas sector is about people. And we don't actually have a automation to the point where, you know, wells drill themselves and, and produce themselves and take themselves to market. So, I mean, it, it really is about people. And the greatest um, interface is that human interface because we can provide insights to each other that are possible only through conversation. So, so the, up, the uh, podcast for Upstream is really exciting to me because we'll be having conversations with real people, authentic conversations about, uh, about what they're doing and how they're doing it. And then also helping 
uh, others connect with them um, so that they can continue the conversation, you know, further um, as it needs to be. And I just, you know, I just think you can't talk too much about oil and gas, especially upstream. Been doing it for 41 years. So I think, I think then there's still more to talk about. So, so I'm really looking forward to this. That's great. And so the show is the show live now, or when can we expect that that first show that you've recorded to drop? Yeah, the first the first show has dropped. Um, I knew it was going to be launched in October. I didn't know exactly when. Um, I was on vacation, and when I got back, my daughter said, "Mom, is this you?" And she uh, texted me a photo of the upstream, uh, well, I guess upstream podcast um, on OGGN's website. So I was really excited about that. So yeah, it has dropped today about, uh, I don't know, 20 minutes ago, uh, or I should say 20 minutes before the show, I actually posted on LinkedIn um, where you can find it and, and all that excitement. So I hope everyone will want to <laughs> will want to connect with me at, um, on LinkedIn and, and see all my posts and I'll always be bragging about who's um, on the show, but also give a little bit uh, uh, of information about what we'll be talking about. And, you know, you don't, obviously people are busy and have lots of podcasts, but I hope Upstream would be uh, a podcast that people would be interested in. So that's why putting in a little bit of detail about what we'll be talking about is something that I, I'm, I hope to do and plan to do. But yeah, that's a great. new show every week. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you're not recording shows, tell me a little bit more about this consulting that you do. Oh, yes. Well, I'm, I'm very excited about that. So uh, I guess it um, it starts with the brain candy in that I really love learning new things and talking to really smart people and people in research are both, right? So I'm, I'm really excited about that. And one of my jobs, well, I shouldn't say one of my jobs, my job at um, Department of Energy before I retired was to build a portfolio of research of projects um, that would, you know, move the needle and, you know, solve some problems. And granted, there was, you know, offshore challenges and and onshore questions and produced water questions and, you know, methane emissions questions and things like that. So those are all, you know, they're not the same thing. Um, different research angles uh, on the research. Um, but one of my jobs was to build this portfolio that would really demonstrate to taxpayers that we're moving the needle on a certain on a certain front. And so, in order to do that, um, Congress would appropriate Congress does appropriate research dollars uh, to the executive branch, and the Department of Energy gets some money. And so, that is the money that's the basis for the investment that the DOE will make in in the research projects. And so, they'll, the the um, government will put out solicitations and say, we're interested in uh, tackling this question, send us your proposals, you know, this is how we're going to construct this um, the solicitation. And so people will send in proposals and then they'd be evaluated by subject matter experts and then, um, you know, sort of the best projects are the ones that are selected for uh, negotiation for award. Well, the frustrating thing to me was that many times a great idea would not be selected for award because it was poorly written as a proposal. And when you're working with the government, there's a lot of I's to dot and a lot of T's to cross, and they all have to be um, done well because this is a fair and open competi competition. And so you really should be attentive to all the aspects of the competition and, and all the rules and, 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 and just, like as I said, all aspects of the competition. So there would be people who are 
um, not very good at writing proposals, and in which case you should get some help if you're not good at writing proposals. But the issue is that unless um, they could compete well, they would not be funded, even though it was a great idea. So I thought if I ever have a chance to help people, you know, like review their proposals and share with them where they might improve according to the evaluation criteria in the funding opportunity announcement itself. I mean, there's no secrets. It's like, here's how you can be graded. This is, <laughs> this is what you have to do. And so you just have to do it, but it, it's rigorous. There's a lot, a lot to do. So that's what I do is I help people, I review people's proposals uh, for the purpose of giving them feedback so that they can improve their presence in this competition. And right now the Department of Energy has, well, I'm not even counting the um, IRA funding. Um, prior to IRA, Department of Energy had $1.1 trillion to spend on energy transition research. Wow. And that's just one agency, the Department of Energy. That's a big number. And I I'm, I sat down one time to, how long does it take to count to a trillion dollars? It was like 300 and something years. I mean, it was like, you just can't, you know, one second, right? You just can't imagine how big that number is. Um, so that's what, um, so that's what I do. And I launched um, at um, OTC, um, and I've been real excited about what I've been able to do and, and help clients and like that. And no, I don't reveal my client list, and so <laughs> don't ask me. <laughs> so, but but I'm real excited about that. And of course, um, being a consultant, I get to work as many hours as I as I want or don't want to, and that's another wonderful aspect of it. So I get to meet and talk with great people. Um, in, in, as part of the consultancy, uh, and, uh, having them, you know, getting to know people. Um, I already have a huge network as it is, but just continually being on the edge of what people are thinking, um, and doing with respect to their research, um, and the competitions that they're entering. I mean, it fills all of my needs for what I wanted to do that would be fun in retirement <laughs> and not spend too much time. I actually do have fun. I yep. actually do uh, take time off. So as I said, vacation. Very exciting. That is, it. we need more people who enjoy grant writing. So I am happy to know that you enjoy it. And I hope that Oh, I that don't brings... enjoy the grant writing part. No, I don't enjoy <laughs> the writing part. <laughs> uh, okay. I enjoy the review part and helping people improve there. Um, but I don't do any writing. No, I don't do writing. I just had to clear that up. <laughs> yes, yes. That is a very important distinction. But for anybody who is applying for grants, it is it is good to know that, that we have a professional reviewer here. Yes. Well, with that, I want to transition into the final questions. These are the questions I ask all of my guests. The first question being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Oh, that I would recommend. Well, let's see. I just started. Well, okay. So I am a conservative person, um, faithful. And so the good book is the first book that I that I read. And I want everyone to uh, consider uh uh, you know, reading it uh, at least uh, every once in a while. Um, but I'm looking up the title of The Fossil, Fossil Future by Alex Epstein. I'm reading that right now. And it is so, he is not, a, he's not an energy person. He's not an oil and gas person. He's a philosopher. And so he's taking a point of view of just looking at a lot of things. And it's really exciting to me to have sort of that extra insight, that extra, or I should say, 
outside, right? Looking at it from a larger perspective and putting things together. Um, and so I'm real excited about some of the points that are being made there. Um, so that's that's a book that I think uh, you know people in oil and gas and people outside of oil and gas should um, should consider uh, reading. All right, that is a good one. I've definitely seen Alex making the rounds with his with Fossil Future, and it's one of those that eventually I do plan on getting a copy and and reading it. The next question is: When will we be net zero as a society? So net zero, I think that, I think it's hard. I think it's, it's going to be a long time. I wish I, I could give a better answer. I think it's going to be a long time because I'm not sure that enough people are really cognizant of what it actually takes to get there and the kinds of things that we all need to do. And they don't need to all be painful, but they just, all, we all just have to be moving in the same direction. And I think that right now people aren't doing any critical analysis and understanding what is their own personal lifestyle like? What is their own personal energy policy? I think there's a lot of people talking in sound bites and acting in sound bites, if you will. I mean, not really taking serious effort. Uh, and so, a lot, you know, everyone needs to be moving in the, in the same direction in order for us to really make some progress. Um, and because it's really about a cultural shift, I think it'll be a long time. So, my thoughts. That's a very, I, I like your, your take on it there. And I really appreciate the emphasis on the personal aspect. I've got some stuff in the, in the pipeline, if you will, focusing on that personal aspect and what that means. So it, it's, it's good to hear that. And I think it, to your point, it is, it is a, it is a personal choice, but also everybody. So it's also a communal choice that we have to be going towards it. And I mean, for some reason, the first thing that popped in my head was bamboo shirts when you were talking and I was like, yeah, absolutely. Personal choice. If I could have a bamboo shirt, I would, I would love to have one and all of the same similar qualities to like your, your athletic tech shirts, except it is, I guess you could call it a sustainable t-shirt. But for me, the price is just too expensive. I can't, I can't mentally make that, that leap yet. And it's, it's one of those hard decisions to make that it is a personal choice and accepting, do you want to make that sustainable, slightly more expensive choice, or do you want to stick with the status quo and, and wait for, wait for something else to, to push you or nudge you along down that path. And for some things I, I gladly say, yes, let's go for the more sustainable option in other scenarios, I I have not, I personally have not even made that jump yet, which is, it is, to some people, that would be hard to admit. I, I completely um, understand and appreciate what you're saying. It is that uh, the cost of change versus the cost of remaining the same, and, the, and we face that on many, many, many fronts, including, you know, oil and gas research and, and new technology development. You know, you don't want to be the first to to um, 
to take a risk, if you will, on something that's totally new. You also don't want to be the one who spends the most money to get, you know, to get there, to get to that, to the next level. And, and it doesn't matter, you know, what front it is. Change costs. And so how much are you willing to spend is, you know, what is the cost of, of not changing, right? And how, how much are you willing to pay and how much are you willing to, quote, suffer, um, you know, the transition um, in order to, to, to make that change. And, it, you know, when you're talking about something as uh, dramatic as, you know, net, net zero, that, that is huge. And so everybody has to be on board. And I just, I just don't know that, that, we, that we are. So, hmm. yeah. So the next question is now you actually get to ask me a question. And being a professional podcast host, I know you're going to have a great one for me. Yeah, the the question I really want to ask you has to do with geothermal and it has to do with the transition of oil and gas skills and skill sets, especially the upstream skill sets, to the um, geothermal sector, you know, EGS or enhanced geothermal systems. And the mechanics of that and the pace of that and and you know, how many petroleum engineers can you use in that arena and and those kinds of things. That's that's the the general question. I'm you know it's not a precise question because I don't know uh, what area you're involved in, but to be, um, I mean that would be so exciting um, if that could be moved in. Uh, I I guess the other the hesitancy I I see in the transition is that maybe some people don't want to work with petroleum engineers. They want to work with those oil and gas people, but but they're all really nice people, so there should be. So anyway, that's my question. Yeah. So. The transition, the transition from oil and gas to geothermal, I think that that transition, as well as transitioning from oil and gas extraction to CCS or carbon sequestration, to me, those are the most obvious and most natural fits for individuals who are currently at an oil and gas company who are looking to still use their skill sets and all of their experience and applying those in a different way in in an energy in the in the larger energy ecosystem or energy industry and i think i i quickly looked up and and saw your first show is with susan nash and she is a huge promoter of geothermal and and critical minerals those are two areas that that she sees the value and the, I guess you could call it the the easier transition, if you will. And then my company as well, the one that my day job, I, I'm the geothermal lead for PetroLearn. And it's the same thing that we do is we focus on repurposing different, different infrastructure in the oil and gas sector as well as transferring knowledge and transferring new tools and new technology into geothermal and CCS. And I think it's it really is the first place I think everybody should look if they are looking to do something new, not not be producing oil and gas anymore, but still want to be producing energy. I think that is the first natural fit. And I, I realize this show is going to come out in a few weeks, but just this week, I've I've seen multiple new jobs coming up for 
geothermal geologists, geothermal engineers, and and most of those companies were started utilizing existing oil and gas technology. So I think it as the geothermal industry grows, as we look to take geothermal anywhere and everywhere, it's going to require more engineers, more geologists, and more drilling crews. And ultimately, I think that is the the way to make geothermal go exponential is to, it, it can only be done with the oil and gas industry because that is where all of the, that is the, the bulk of the expertise and of the, the tools to actually produce energy from the ground. And we're not going to be building hundreds of new drill rigs. The drill rigs that are being used today in sedimentary basins are going to drill a little bit deeper and start targeting hot water or drill a little bit deeper and stimulating the basement or stimulating and producing hot water. So that's a bit of a ramble to say, yes, everybody come on over. We will find a place for you and we'll produce energy together. And that's wonderful to hear because now more than ever, there are more women in the oil and gas sector than there ever have been. And that's really exciting to me. And so I want there to be a robust career opportunity for uh, new entrants into the oil and gas sector, new entrants into the energy sector, um, that uh, if you have you know, a talent and interest in this arena of STEM, that you have places where you can go and you can pursue it. Yep. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Elena, for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? This is fun. <laughs> this is fun talking about my favorite topics, oil and gas and energy. Absolutely. And so I hope uh, everyone will accept my invitations to, to, to be interviewed as guests on podcast upstream, oil and gas upstream, and we'll continue to say yes to you um, as you continue your uh, podcast um, energy transition solutions. Well, thank you. And you heard it, everybody. Go and find Elena's show. If she sends you a message on LinkedIn or an email, please accept the invitation because she is a joy to talk to and whatever you have to say will ultimately help people understand energy better and and help promote our, our great energy industry so that everybody has equitable, reliable energy for the foreseeable future. So thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and let me know that you're enjoying it by leaving a review. If you want to hear more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts that, that I mentioned at the beginning. If you want to find others, you can go to OGGN.com. You can go to OGGN on LinkedIn. You can just search OGGN on on Apple Podcasts, and you'll find all of them, including Elena's show. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me a message on LinkedIn or send me an email 
And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.